How are we this morning? Doing well? Good? All right. So this morning is the first live sermon we've had since this whole COVID thing started. So no pressure there. All right. And I'd like to throw this out. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 17 for the visitors, chapter 17 verses 14 to 21. And for the regulars, yes, we are still in Matthew. So there you go. Uh, if you've been watching our discussions on our YouTube channel, we have had, had discussions working through Matthew. And the last discussion was in regards to the transfiguration. So as we get into the scripture this morning, you have Jesus coming down to the mount, from the mount, and meeting a large group of people. And if I was to title this sermon, or what I want you guys to focus on, I would phrase it this way, actionable faith. And I know that faith in its regular context has an action component to it, but I want to tease that out a little bit and put actionable faith in front of that. The idea that there is an action involved in our faith, and we'll get into that a little bit more here in a minute. But as we divvy up this scripture, I'm going to divvy it up into three parts. And they all start with P, so make it pretty simple. First, you have posture. Come to Jesus. Then you have power. Jesus acts. And then potential, growth in faith. So if we have the correct posture, the ultimate power, and the realized potential. So let's go ahead and jump into it, looking at posture. We'll go ahead and read verses 14 to 16. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. So the first thing I want you to notice as we read through this is the posture of the father. You notice that he knelt down before Jesus. Knelt is a word for humility. He is subservient to Jesus. He uses the word Lord, which is a word for worship. He's identifying Jesus for who he is. And then he asks for mercy, acknowledges the authority of Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to heal his son. He's not obligated to heal his son. So the father is asking him for mercy. Please heal my son, not because you have to, but because you want to. The father wants healing for his son. In Mark chapter 9, we have the same account. And the son is called a lunatic or moonstruck. During this time, there was a lot of studies of the sun, the moon, the stars, trying to figure all that out. So the word moonstruck actually comes from the belief that moon creates mental disorders. The other part that I don't want you to miss here is the evil, the demon that is inside of this boy. The evil doesn't want anything good for this child. The evil wants destruction, creates destructive behavior. The boy is throwing himself in fire. He's throwing himself in the water to, to the point of almost drowning. 
So that evil is there, and it just wants destruction. The father has tried everything to try to heal the son. He's even taken him to the disciples. And they can't do anything, which I find fascinating because Jesus commissioned the disciples to do exactly that in chapter 10. They were commissioned to be able to cast out demons, but yet they were unable to do that. Makes me kind of wonder, maybe they were yielding their power as if it were magic. But I would come back to the word posture and ask that question. What was their posture when they approached this situation? So actionable faith requires a correct posture. So now that we've looked at posture and identified the fact that there's a humility component, there's worship to it, there's an ask for mercy, we'll move into the power. Looking at verses 17 and 18, it reads, Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Jesus calls out the sin. It's the sin of unbelief. The other piece here is Jesus states, how long must I put up with you? Think about this. They have frustrated him to the point that he is asking the question, how long must I be with you? If you've been with us, you know that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. That's how bad this situation is. How long must I stay here and deal with you? I would much rather go through this and get out of here. So I think there's a component there that we see Jesus' humanity, the frustration in his heart from the standpoint that up to this point, the disciples have seen numerous miracles. They've seen the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000, the healings. There's a number of things that they have seen, but yet they still don't quite understand who Jesus is. They're unbelieving, perverse generation. Perverse means taking truth and perverting it, changing it, altering it, so that it is no longer truth. I can't help but ask the question or plead, may this not be true of us. May we not frustrate Jesus to the point that we are unbelieving or we perverse the truth. May this not be true of us. Next, Jesus has the power over darkness. He casts out the demon with words. Notice that Jesus' healing is definitive. It's absolute. It's complete. Once Jesus does something, it is finished. It's not like he leaves and then the demon returns. Once the boy is healed, the boy is healed. But Jesus' healing is definitive. Amen? So we've gone through posture and power. Actionable faith requires the ultimate power. The ultimate power in Jesus. We can't do any of this without him. There is no correct posture without the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And we must now really realize our potential. Let's go ahead and look at verses 19 to 21. 
Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. He tru for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the disciples thought they had the power. They thought they had the authority. However, they had little faith. And we've talked about this a little bit before. When Jesus uses the term little faith, it's in relation to what they've seen. They've seen great miracles, but yet for what they've seen, their faith is very little. Then he talks about faith being the size of a mustard seed. It's something small that then can grow substantially. We've talked about this before in chapter 13. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 13, verses 31, starting in verse 31. It says, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Jesus is using the mustard seed in multiple illustrations. But I want to kind of dig into this a little bit. So you have the size of a mustard seed that is very small, and if the kingdom of heaven is an actual mustard seed that starts out small and then grows from there, then you have faith that meets with that mustard seed and grows. But how does that work? Let's go ahead, look a little bit earlier in chapter 13, starting in verse 3. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on the ground, on good ground, and produced fruit, some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who listens, oh, he, let anyone who has ears listen. So in order for that seed to take root, there has to be the proper soil. The soil being our hearts prepared by the Holy Spirit. And in that, so the whole, the kingdom of heaven being the mustard seed, we get to be part of that when it's implanted in the right ground and grows into a giant tree. If you've spent any time with somebody that is mature in their faith, you can see countless examples of their growth in faith. And so, taking this analogy a little bit further, the birds of the air, just the idea that we should attract people 
because of our faith. It is not just starting out as tiny as a mustard seed, but it also grows into something substantial, something amazing. The other thing Jesus refers to is mountains. So we have the mustard seed, the tiny faith, that then grows into something amazing through the work of the Holy Spirit. We also have the mountains. And for anybody taking notes, we have references, Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, 49, 8 through 12, 54 through 10. I won't turn there now, but the idea of the mountains in Isaiah and throughout Scripture is the idea that the mountains are laid low in preparation for the coming king. So what is Jesus talking about here when it says that we can move mountains? We are moving mountains in preparation for the kingdom of heaven. The boy with the demon is a mountain. It's an obstacle in the way of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus removes that mountain, levels that mountain in preparation for the kingdom of heaven. So as we grow in our faith, we are able to take part in that as well. Prepare the way for the king. Now we come to verse 21, which depending on your Bible, may or may not be in there. Uh, There's some discussion about that as far as it might have been a side note that kind of made its way in, whatever it might be. Mine, Mine is in a footnote, and it says, however, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. If you look at the account in Mark, it includes prayer. Matthew adds fasting. So what's Jesus talking about as far as prayer and fasting? Prayer and fasting are tools that help us grow in our faith because it draws us closer to God. Looking at Daniel 9.3, Daniel is petitioning God. His people are in exile, and he's petitioning God in prayer. Daniel 9.3, so I turn my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he's seeking God through prayer and petitions. Matthew 21, 13, he, Jesus, said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but but you are making it into a den of thieves. The tabernacle, the place where the temple, where they would meet, was considered the house of God. And Jesus calls it the house of prayer. That's where we meet God. We meet God through prayer. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. So there's an ongoing prayer. It's not just a one-time thing. It's continual prayer. James 5, 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So right there, James is stating, prayer is powerful. So I'll throw this question out. Why is it one of the last things we go to? 
I speak to myself in saying that prayer is one of the last things we go to or it's something that we go to when we're in trials. Now, there's prayer warriors out there, and please don't take offense to that, but I would suggest that in most cases, prayer is one of the last things that we resort to. That's one of the things that kind of drew me to this church originally was one of the statements is prayer is primary. It is primary. It should be the first thing we go to, not the last thing. Then we have fasting. Daniel 9.3 mentioned fasting as well. Matthew 4.2, after he fasted, speaking of Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think this is a great picture of Jesus' humanity. Spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, he's hungry. But he spent those days fasting. He spent those days connecting with his father. So there's something there. Acts 13, 2 through 3, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called him. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So Barnabas and Paul were going on their missionary work. What did they do? They fasted and prayed. So whether 21 should be in there or not, I think there's some good information there that we can draw from. The power of prayer and the power of fasting. So we've gone through and we've talked about the posture, the correct posture, coming to Jesus, the ultimate power, Jesus acting, he's healing the boy, and realized potential, growth in faith. So where do we go from here? What do we do? Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So we have the posture we have the power. We see, realize our potential to see Jesus move. But that's all encompassed together with love. Jesus expressed love in the healing of his son. Because remember, I mentioned, he didn't have to do that. He's not obligated to do that. But out of love, he did that. And I always like to throw this out. Definition of love. Love is wanting the best for the other person. It's not about me. It's about the other person. So I like to pull together formulas. So you have the correct posture, the Father, the ultimate power, Jesus, realized potential, the disciples, and love, the boys being healed. That's actionable faith. It's us and Jesus working together to restore what he originally created and what he originally intended. He, Jesus has invited us to be part of this. 
actionable faith results in demonstrations of love. I think of the time in which we went to the doctor for Ada's ultrasound. She's our second oldest daughter. And we found out that she had a single cord. Typically, you have a, the umbilical cord is set up as two. She only had one. So we had discussions with the doctors as to what to do. Because there was potential for birth defects, being born underweight, development issues, the whole gamut. So going through this situation changed my posture, changed our posture. We had to go to God. We had to cry out in mercy. We had to ask for his compassion, his power, his willingness to protect our child in this situation. You know what? God showed his power, his mercy, and his love, and our faith grew because of it. You know the irony of the situation? We had the discussion with the doctors. Your child's going to be underweight. Your child's going to have potential birth defects, on and on and on. Ada, we have four kids. She was born the biggest kid out of all four. And if you've spent any time with her, she has the biggest heart that I've ever seen. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's just a testament to how wonderful our God is. So the, the circumstances in which God ordained put us in a position where we had a choice. We could have said, well, forget this, God. We're frustrated with this situation. We're going to do something else. But instead, we turned to him. We sought his mercy. He showed his love, power, and mercy. And our faith grew. Pretty awesome. Now, in closing... And thinking about the last couple weeks, you might ask, where do we start? What do we do? For true change in society, we need actionable faith. We need to be on mission with God to bring the kingdom of heaven. Well, that starts with the place where we realize who we are. I'm the problem. I'm broken. I have pride. I think about it this last week. So some of the athlete ladies have been getting together for a Bible study the last couple weeks. Melissa will go. You would think that I would be excited about her going to Bible study. And don't get me wrong, I am. But at the same time, I know what that means for me. I have to set my desires, my ambitions, my goals, my feelings aside and tend to the children. And if you know, we have a one-year-old. And if you've ever dealt with a one-year-old, you know they can be pretty ornery. 
at times. So it's not a situation where, like with the older ones, you can tell them to go play a video game or read a book. You have to tend to her needs. And I struggle with that because I want Alyssa to go. I know it is good for her. But at the same time, the pride inside my own heart says, no, don't go. I don't want to deal with this. I'm tired. I've worked all day. This is the last thing I want to do. But remember my definition of love. My definition of love is wanting the best for the other person. So I have to set my agenda aside and step into this situation. It's not easy, but it's what we're called to do. We're called to root out the pride. Pride is the reason why we are in this mess to begin with. Pride is the reason why Eve said, no, God, I know you said this, but I'm going here. I'm doing this. That's pride. That's telling God that I know better than you do. So we have to root out that pride. And so that starts with the proper posture. And we get to that posture through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts in realizing where the true healing comes from. It comes from the work of Jesus on the cross for what he has done for us. So until we really take that to heart, I'm afraid you're still going to see the evils of this world. Because remember, evils desire destructive behavior. But there is true healing. And that true healing comes from Jesus and the work that he's done on the cross. So you might ask the question, why we can't get along? Why can't we relate to each other? It's because we're not relating with God correctly. And until we fix that relationship, there's no hope for this. Because this is full of hate, pride, whatever you want to throw in there. It's full of all sorts of things, evil, destructive things. So until we go here and fix our relationship with God, there's no hope for this type of relationship. So as believers, we really need to take to heart what Christ has done for us because that will put us in the correct posture. We're able to approach tough, sticky situations with a posture of humility because we understand what Christ has done for us. So as we come to the time of communion, we'll go ahead and ask the band to come on up. This is, this is it. This is our time as believers to remember exactly what Christ did for us. He died a horrible death on our behalf to reconcile our relationship with God.
So if you're not in that situation and you haven't reconciled with God, I ask that you reach out, talk to somebody, talk to, if you came with somebody, you can talk with myself, Zach. Just reach out, have that conversation. We would be happy to do that. If you are a believer and we come to the table, I just ask that you take that time to reflect. Where is your posture? Is it in a posture of humility? Is the Holy Spirit working in your heart? Or is it full of hate and frustration? I know for myself, looking out with everything going on, there's definitely frustration in here. And so as Alyssa prayed in the beginning, we need to take that to Jesus. And this is our opportunity to do exactly that, to remember what he has done. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.